Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. My name is Lauren Hicks. I'm with the Ogletree Atlanta office, and I am here today with my colleague Jim Plunkett out of our Washington, D.C. office, who writes our weekly column, The Beltway Buzz. And we're going to discuss the impact of the recent affirmative action cases that are pending in front of the Supreme Court and how they impact the employment law universe. Jim, can you give some background on what's going on with the Supreme Court? Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. I think this is going to be a really interesting and, and, and timely discussion. The Supreme Court just had held oral arguments on these two cases uh, on, on Halloween. So um, it's it's right on the tip of our tongues here. And um, our clients are asking us these questions. So hopefully we can uh, provide some insight in, in, in this uh, in this podcast. So um, as we discussed beforehand, Lauren, I think what we'll do here is I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the what's been happening at the Supreme Court, uh, and then I'll talk to you, and then I'll hand it over to you, and we'll have a discussion about how that's going to impact uh, em- employment law, and in particular, uh, federal contractors, uh, if at all. Uh, so before getting into the, the the Supreme Court discussion, just really quickly, and and I'm, I was a history major in college, so I, I'm, I'm sort of a, a history nerd, and I think it's sort of uh, really um, interesting how uh, the government procurement policy and federal contractors have, uh, throughout history over the last 80 years, have really been at the forefront of the, the development and the progress of uh, civil rights uh, in, in our country. So, you know, for example, in, in 1943, FDR uh, issued an executive order uh, to encourage the hiring of, of minorities uh, in, in, for federal contractors uh, because of the, 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 the exploding, maybe that's a bad word, the, the, the growing uh, defense industry in, in, in World War II. So it started way, way back with FDR. Uh, President Truman issued an executive order. President Kennedy uh, in 1961, uh, for the first time, he issued an executive order that used the phrase affirmative action, required government contractors to use affirmative action to ensure equal employment opportunity in the workplace. And then, of course, uh, uh, President Johnson, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson, in 1965, a year after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he issued Executive Order 11246, which we're all familiar with, and that that's been amended obviously o- over the years. But that you know, sort of for the for the first time, took all those equal employment opportunities, civil rights uh, the functions for the government procurement, and put them in the Department of Labor, uh, where where we know they they exist uh, uh, today. So while that was all happening and developing in the, the, the federal government contracting and procurement world, uh, academia um, also sort of started to take steps um, to um, ameliorate um, past uh, racial discrimination um, uh, in efforts to ensure um, uh, equal opp- opportunity of education and provide for a diverse uh, educational experience for, uh, for students schools of higher education at colleges and, and, and universities. Um, and then, so obviously if, if the universities are gonna be using race as a factor uh, in their admissions, 
you know, this is um, creates some tension with with civil rights laws and with the Constitution that in a very general way says you shouldn't be using race to to do these things. Uh, so those cases and th those universities practices, you know, start to get challenged uh, beginning in the late 70s. And and like the Supreme Court often does, um, which can be frustrating to to, to litigants and Supreme Court watchers, they very rarely, you know, make a, a, a final decision on something. They try to nibble around the edges and, and make the most narrow decision possible. Uh, so the issue of uh, the use of race in college and university of admission, admissions uh, has, has been at the Supreme Court in 1978, uh, and it was back in 2003, and then again in, in 2016. And then even before that 2016 case, uh, the case that was uh, uh, heard by the Supreme Court just last week on Halloween uh, was began. And that was in, in 2014. A group of students filed a lawsuit against a, a private university and then and a public university. And the private university, um, because the, the, the Constitution doesn't apply to them, they said, hey, Title, title VI of the Civil Rights Act, you're, you guys are getting federal funds. Uh, title VI says if you're getting federal funds, you can't discriminate. Um, and your use of, of race uh, in the admissions practice is contrary to, to Title VI. Um, in, in a very similar argument, when, when you get down to the weeds, it's, it's, it gets a little bit more, it's a, it's a little different, but very sort of broad brush structure. It's a very similar argument that they made it in, with the public university case. They said, hey, um, the, the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, you know, bars you from uh, the Equal Protection Clause bars you from discriminating and or using race in, in your ad, ad, admissions uh, practices. That was the, how the case was set up. Uh, the, the lower courts uh, said, this is good. They can, the, the universities can do this. Um, uh, the Supreme Court has established this precedent that says if they use this as a factor uh, uh, in order to create a, a diverse student body, that, that's good. The one thing that I, I do want to point out, Lauren, is that I know in the, before at the beginning, I talked about ameliorating, you know, uh, a history of, of discrimination. That's never been a reason in the, in these Supreme Court cases for, to allow the universities to, to use race. It's always been on this uh, idea of creating a, a diversity in, in ed education. That's an interesting sort of tidbit and uh, something that I think, you know, might um, impact our discussion later about how it's impacting uh, employment law. So at oral argument, bas basically the students, their arguments, they made these in the briefs and at oral argument, they said, hey, listen, Brown versus the Board of Education said, you know, basically said, you can't use race in school. Full stop. That's it. You know, we, we win. Um, and that uh, to take a, a, a quote from Justice Roberts in one of the previous cases, you know, he said to stop discriminate to stop discriminating on the basis of race. We have to stop discriminating on the basis of race, and that was what the the students said. They said, "Hey, this is, uh, you know, straight up using um, uh, race in school admissions. Um, the diversity interest is rather amorphous and and, and nebulous, uh, and it and it's clear cut. Brown says we can't use race in the in school settings." The universities, you know, they said, hey, you know, we've uh, we've been here three times before. Uh, the diversity of the student body has always been a compelling interest uh, for the universities to use race um, as a factor in, in the admissions process. 
Um, and it's just one race is just one factor of many that's considered uh, by the university factory. It's not always a determinative factor, uh, but it is used sometime. Uh, and, you know, diversity in education benefits everyone, you know, these diverse student bodies and, you know, go on to help create diverse corporate boardrooms, diverse uh, medical care settings, diverse uh, membership in, in the halls of Congress, et, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the two arguments on, 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 on each side. The, at, at oral argument, the, the five conservative-leaning justices, I think, Lauren, were uh, skeptical of the university's defense despite the three Supreme Court cases establishing a precedent. One of their com- sort of points of argument was what diversity is. You know, uh, Justice Thomas said, you know, I'm not really sure what you mean by diversity. How do you really define it? Justice Alito said, you know, was like, how do we know when we've reached diversity? You know, what 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 does it mean? And Justice Barrett said similar or or asked similar questions about, you know, what what's the end point? You know, how are you know how do you know when you've achieved uh, 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 that that diversity? And then Justice Roberts, uh, he um, referred back to a, a famous quote from Justice O'Connor in one of the previous cases. Uh, in the in the 2003 case, which uh, Justice O'Connor said, you know, this use of race in admissions makes me uncomfortable, but I think I'm going to okay it. But I think that after 25 years, um, we should be at a point where we don't need to be doing this uh, anymore. Um, and we're not at that 25 year point, uh, but we're getting we're getting close to that. And and Justice Roberts sort of you know, made some points along those lines that said, we've been doing this a long time. The idea of it from a legal standpoint makes makes me uncomfortable and sort of, um, you know, wondering if we're getting to the end of the road here. On the flip side, the, the more liberal leaning uh, justices, I think, um, frankly, were def- de- defending the, the, the universe. Their line of questioning seemed to indicate that they thought that th- the use of, of race and the admissions process was not not an issue. Um, uh, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, who's sitting in her first term, uh, made a, a point that a lot of folks in the legal community have picked up on as, um, you know, and they thought was a very effective argument. And she said, you know, say you've got this, and she used this in the public university context. She said, hey, so say you've got this public university uh, and somebody's applying to it, a, a, a white uh, student is applying to it, and they've got a, a history of their family attending this, this public university. Well, that's a, f- a factor that the university could use um, when making a decision whether you know, to, to, to um, enroll this student, uh, to accept this student's uh, a- application. They can use that student's family history as a so-called legacy of the university to agree to en- enroll them. But then conversely um, and incorrectly, according to Justice Jackson, the same school would be prohibited under the student's argument, under the, 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 um, uh, the, the student's argument, that same school would be prohibited from using a Black and African-American applica- applicants' admissions papers um, who said, you know, hey, you know, I, I was, my family was forbidden. They prohibited you know, from going to your school um, because of the law and because of your your policies. 
So I, I was not allowed to go to your school because of my African-American heritage in, in the past. And the university wouldn't be able to use that as a factor. So they could use the, the, the white student's legacy of, a, of previous family admissions as a factor. That would be OK. But then the black student's um, uh, history of being prohibited, uh, uh, whose family was prohibited from attending, they couldn't use that. So um, that was a, um, a very... Um, I thought a, a effective line of argument from um, Justice Jackson and one I think that 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 folks picked up and uh, Justice Kagan, you know, she talked about and I, I mentioned this just a little bit ago about how this the, the diversity in higher education, you know, leads to this sort of pipelines of leadership uh, in in society, whether it's at, uh, you know, law firms, hospitals, the military. Uh, politics, um, all, all that 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 sort of thing. So everybody knows the the numbers these days, and and at the Supreme Court, I said there's the five conservative justices, the the, the three more liberal leaning justices. Um, everybody can count. You know, it's uh, still we don't know what's what's going to happen. The five justices were conservative justices were I think generally more critical uh, of the university's arguments. Uh, and I think the, the, the three liberal leaning justices were a little bit more receptive to the argument that diversity is a compelling interest that should allow both private and public universities to use race as one factor uh, in, in the admissions process. Um, I think this is one of those cases, Lauren, you know, the Supreme Court often reserves their most, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but the, the sort of biggest cases uh, to the to the sort of very end of their term, which usually occurs sometime in June. I have a feeling that this is going to be one of those. Uh, so we're going to have to wait uh, a little uh, while until we get a, a ruling. In the meantime, I know that you're getting lots of questions uh, from uh, from clients about, uh, you know, well, you know, if the, the Supreme Court is going to opine on affirmative action, the use of race and, race and admissions processes, uh, you know, how does this impact affirmative action uh, requirements for federal contractors? How does it impact um, DE and I initiatives that my company is is undertaking? So there there's lots of questions. So um, about the impact of these cases, can you provide us with some thoughts on 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 how you think this might end up? Absolutely, and there's a lot to discuss. First of all, I think it's important to set the foundation for what is affirmative action in the employment context. And it's important to note, Jim, we see um, some employers use the terminology affirmative action differently than the sort of narrow regulations and the compliance requirements that are required for federal contractors and subcontractors. So before we get to the federal subcontractor and contractor requirements, Understand that affirmative action can sometimes be used uh, by employers in kind of a generic way, not so much as a term of art, but as a sub somewhat of a substitute for diversity and inclusion. They might engage in affirmative action in relationship to things that parallel the obligations for contractors, or they may use it for more expansive purposes, right? So they may use it to reach out and try to create inclusivity or special initiatives related to classes that don't really fall within protected classes under the regulations, but are of cultural interest. And so they're trying to create a, you know, some type of recognition or acknowledgement there. In doing so, they sometimes use the terminology affirmative action 
or these DEI programs might accomplish the same thing, even if it doesn't use that precise terminology. So contractors and non-contractors who use DEI initiatives that fall maybe outside of the scope of compliance, it could be really broad, right? We, we couldn't possibly discuss the entirety of the universe of what different businesses may do or, or choose to focus on. I think we just want to highlight that you know, if a business has such efforts, whether they call them affirmative action or some type of other diversity and inclusion initiative, they might have to circle back to them after the Supreme Court hearing and make sure that they're not violating law. Mm-hmm. So setting that aside, then we have the regulatory requirements that apply to federal contractors and federal subcontractors. And these, Jim, are, like you mentioned, long-established norms that come along with what the government would say is the privilege of federal contracting, right? No one is forced to be a federal contractor. And if you choose to engage in federal contracting, we have these priorities to create a more uh, sort of diverse and inclusive workforce. And if you want federal dollars, you have to make these special efforts to make your workforce more inclusive. So these regulations, there are a few of them, right? We've got uh, the the biggie, I would say, is Executive Order 11246, and it covers several, several areas, but most importantly, we're talking race and sex. And then we also have affirmative action obligations related to veterans and individuals with disabilities once you've crossed over certain dollar jurisdictional thresholds and number of employees. But they're pretty low and most businesses doing um, work with the federal government tend to cross and to at least some of these thresholds. When you do that, you now have affirmative action obligations that come on an ongoing basis and are much broader than the simple non-discrimination obligations that exist uh, sort of under Title VII and other parallel laws. Instead, these affirmative action obligations require that specific steps be taken on an ongoing basis to try and include women and minorities and veterans and individuals with disabilities into the workforce. And Jim, it helps to give a little bit of history here and think back to the time when these regulations were passed. We're talking in the 60s and 70s, pre-internet, when information was not readily accessible and people didn't have the means to access information and jobs or to move so easily and think things were just different. And so at that time, the government looked at the situation and said, you know, we've got veterans returning from war. We want to help make sure that they're getting employed, that they're not facing a stigma as they return. Women and minorities have historically not been uh, as high participants in the workforce. We're trying to create space for them to become you know, equal participants in the workforce. So federal contractors, you need to reach out to them and make efforts, affirmative efforts, to engage with them and to open the doors of your business, which again, back back then we're talking physical doors, right? Someone would have gone in and applied on a paper. It wouldn't mm-hmm. have been, you know, pressing your resume on a quick link on LinkedIn. Right. And so the thought kind of was, this is a little bit of a simplica- simplification, but the thought really was you know, non-discrimination still rules. We do not treat people, you know, with any type of preference or dispreference in employment decisions. However, before employment decisions, sort of before they show up at your physical door, if you will, 
Um, you need to make efforts to reach out, recruit them, make sure they're aware of your job. Remember at the time, maybe an employer, if you think about an employer, some type of manufacturing plant in Ohio, let's say, they may have recruited for all of their professional jobs by going to the closest university. It's possible the closest university had very few women or minorities, so on and so forth. So maybe it wasn't an intentional exclusion, mm -hmm. but the impact was, you know, the government's looking at the numbers year over year and they're seeing, oh, we're just not seeing the movement we'd like to. So employer, you need to go out and reach out to groups of women and minorities and give them your job postings. Make sure they're aware and that you're telling them you are an inclusive workforce. And Jim, if we have listeners who are not so familiar with the federal contracting regulations, they've probably heard one of the more famous parts of it, right? Which is the equal opportunity employer tagline. Federal contractors have to attach this to you know, their job postings so that people know, hey, we're a welcoming and inclusive workforce. So the regulations, you know, require all of these actions that, that are really efforts of inclusion, right? Today, what we would call sort of inclusion, uh, recruitment, outreach. At the time, you know, this language of affirmative action was used. And it's interesting now, here we are today, and the affirmative action language is used also in the college admissions. But to the, you know, circling back to your points in the discussion, in the college admissions, it's used as a point of affirmative consideration, right? Various weights, various ways they look at it, but it is affirmatively used as an intentional point of consideration. Jim, in the employment context for our federal contractors and subcontractors, the law is quite different. The regulations surrounding federal contractors and subcontractors really state very clearly, many times, quotas and preferences are not permitted, right? So it was never intended to sort of supersede the requirements of non-discrimination that exist in the laws. Instead, it was meant as complementary, again, to, to be inclusive and to open the door and to make sure that we're not just doing what's simple and easy to bring, uh, which may, may limit who's, who's entering the workforce or who's having opportunities. That's a bit of a simplification, but the bottom line when you're looking at, you know, it's confusing because the terminology is the same, right? Affirmative action, affirmative action. But the truth is the legal um, posture of the two is quite different. And the affirmative action regulations for federal contractors have really forbidden the use of race or sex as a factor for employment decisions. There may be some very narrow exception, but the reality is employers are not normally engaging in that because it's to remedy, right? It requires sort of acknowledging and admitting prior discrimination and then remedying that prior discrimination. Barring those, you know, very, very narrow circumstances that are just something we don't see on a regular basis, the regulations are meant to be um, sort of, I call it the original DEI program really their target. It's not to be allowing preference or um, giving weight to race or sex like the college admissions affirmative action in initiatives are. And um, for the federal contractors, they're aware there are even some additional you know, steps that the regulations put into place to try and protect that. 
for example, some of the regulations, um, although they require the self-ID information, the demographic information to be solicited, they then say, but yeah, you should keep that confidential, right? The decision makers should not even be looking at it, right? So that's to help with this, um, A, to protect the privacy of individual applicants and employees, but B, for this purpose, right? To make sure that neither preference nor dispreference is being given, you know, to the applicant or employee on the basis of their, you know, demographic information, whether it's race or sex or any other information. And, um, you know, if, if, if it's not clear already, sort of the bottom line is the cases that are pending in front of the Supreme Court are legally so distinct, they're um, really quite unrelated to affirmative action in the employment context. So uh, you might wonder, has the Department of Labor weighed in on this? And they, they've not weighed in exactly on the current cases, but they have an ongoing pending FAQ that exists on their website. And it reads as follows. In contrast to the affirmative action implemented by many post-secondary institutions, OFCCP does not permit the use of race to be weighed as one factor among many and an individual's application when rendering hiring, employment, or personnel decisions as racial preferences of any kind are prohibited under the authorities administered by OFCCP. OFCCP, therefore, does not permit the use of race as a factor in contractors' employment practices to achieve diversity in the workforce, either by using race as one factor among many to achieve a critical mass of representation for underrepresented minorities, or through direct numerical quotas or set-asides. OFCCP's affirmative action regulations expressly forbid the use of quotas or set-asides, provide no legal justification for a contractor to extend preferences, on the basis of a protected status and do not supersede merit selection principles. I think this is quite clear. This is not new. This is not something that the DOL popped up in response to the pending cases. This has been a long-standing piece of information um, that has existed within the, you know, the Department of Labor's um, sort of information warehouses. So I don't think this case is really expected to change the posture. I do think that um, for employers, whether they're contractors or not, Jim, who are taking more what I would call elective affirmative action obligations or DEI, mm-hmm. I think those are the type of programs that might attract more interest after the decision mm-hmm. comes out uh, next summer, you know, d- depending on what is decided. I do think there may be a little bit of unwinding for a, f- a few universities I've noticed when they have their affirmative action sort of policies, sometimes they will choose to combine, you know, and, and make one really broad policy of covering admissions and employment, sort of commingling those. So there may be a small impact to some universities that they have to go through and sort of separate out, again, de- depending on what happens with the decision, they may have to separate out or, or make sure that they're not um, inappropriately removing the federal contractor requirements if the university is in fact a federal contractor or subcontractor. But, you know, I don't think there will be a big immediate impact because the laws are just very dissimilar. And what is what is being targeted by the cases that are currently pending in the Supreme Court already does not exist in the universe of federal contractors and subcontractors. Now, what I will say is, you know, the terminology is the same. And Jim, I think We've seen so much, 
sort of um, change in the last handful of years. There's been a, a lot of cultural shift toward diversity inclusion efforts. Um, you know, we saw the Me Too movement. There's just been a lot of sort of cultural interest in these areas has maybe uh, pushed employers to take a little bit more action and, and sort of try and be more aggressive in this area. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on whether we may expect follow-up litigation that you know might target more narrowly or specifically either the federal contractor regulations or some of these elective actions that employers are taking that are outside or broader than the scope of the federal contractor affirmative action obligations. Sure. First of all, I, I wasn't familiar with that FAQ from OFCCP, but it seems pretty pretty clear, and uh, and um, I, I agree uh, with what you're saying, Lauren, about how um, you know the the Supreme Court. And I said this, you know, how they try they don't they don't make broad sweeping uh, rulings. They 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 answer the question presented, right? And they're dealing with. The Constitution, the Fourteenth Amendment, and Title VI—they're not dealing with one one two four six and Title VII. Uh, so I, I agree with you that there that the direct impact is is not there. I do think, though, you know how there are lots of smart attorneys around, and they watch what the Supreme Court does. Um, and you know, if the Supreme Court rules on a case involving the authority of, say, the Equal Protection Agency. Um, you know, litigants are going to say, well, is there a way that I can take that argument uh, and somehow shoehorn it into the case that I'm concerned about? Uh, and I think you might see some of that down, down the road um, if uh, indeed the Supreme Court does say that the universities uh, are improperly using race as a factor in the, the admissions process. I do think you could see, um, and it might take some time uh, for some litigants uh, to to use perhaps that reasoning, particularly if it's like a, it's a very clear reasoning, like if they're really adopting the arguments of the, the students are making where they're saying because Brown of education exists, this line of Supreme Court cases cannot exist. Right. You know, if it's, it's very clear, it says you can't use race in these decisions. Like if it's this very clear language there, I think they're going to try to try to use that, particularly, you know, like the OFCCP. You know, they've over the years there's been challenges to to its authority. I think there there's one 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 recent case, to, you know, where a contractor has sort of questioned, you know, the OFCCP's uh, authority, right? So it's it's sort of like they're the OFCCP over the years has has been the subject of various challenges to to its mission and and to how it accomplishes its its mission. So I do think that uh, it it could be um, something that. That, that that litigants use d down the road, but I also agree with you that for for in the immediate uh, sense that uh, that these cases uh, you know that employers th that these cases aren't going to have a direct impact on affirmative action obligations under one one two four six and the Rehab Act and Vevra um, or DEI programs and um, um, other related programs under Title Seven. I agree, Jim. And so I think we leave it with, you know, let's wait and see for next summer what the Supreme Court decides to do. And in the meantime, for, uh, you know, federal contractors and subcontractors, no immediate changes in the context of employment law, but stay tuned. 
and you know circle back to the conversation after the decisions are issued next year. Does that sound right? I think so. Maybe, maybe we should put a calendar uh, uh, reminder in in our calendars, Lauren. You know, uh, sometime in the summer after the case to have a you know to revisit this conversation. Perfect. And with that, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.